0: What does motion sound like? With Kizikans Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizikcom slash socks.
1: Ronnie and Reggie Cray, the infamous Cray twins, have long been etched into London's criminal legend. The Krays ruled the city with fear and their fists. In a period of excess, they brushed shoulders with film stars and politicians before their behavior became too wild to ignore, as did the trail of blood and terror they left across London's streets, pubs, and clubs. Courting publicity and pursued by scandal, they loved to mythologize themselves. But when it comes to the Krays, Where does reality end and legend begin? It is a terrifying tale that spans decades. And like all great stories, it's telling starts in the nearest pub. Bethnal Green, East London, 1966. It's half past eight on a cool March evening, finely tailored footsteps clip the old stones of Whitechapel Road. Not one pair of footsteps, but two. They walk with purpose and direction. Their destination? Ahead at the end, on the corner, shrouded by the darkness of the night, sits a tired-looking pub, as fine an example of an old Victorian boozer as you'll find, called the blind beggar. The door is pulled open, and the fog of cigarette smoke and stale beer wafts out. The rank-smelling clouds seem to part to allow the pub's two new visitors to enter. Everybody in the place turns to look as the door creaks open, and jaws sag as they realize exactly who has arrived. The two men are well known to both punters and passers-by of London's East End. But only one of the men provokes fear and awe. No, it's not the thug Albie Woods who now stands framed in the doorway. It is the man who walks in alongside him. Stockily built, immaculately tailored suit, the hair coiffured just so, the thick black spectacles perched over wild eyes. They all know this man. Hell, everybody does. This is Ronnie Cray, brother of Reggie Cray, who thankfully is nowhere to be seen. Like a gunfighter walking into an old Western saloon, the silence in the shabby pub is deafening. Ronnie stands on the threshold. His gaze is fixed, eyes burrowing into one person who he has immediately caught sight of. At the back perched on a stool at the bar is George Cornell. A half-drunk pint of creamy amber ale in front of him. He is chatting to the young barmaid. He lifts his head and nods a greeting to the infamous East End gangster. All eyes turn to him now, and, against all expectation, George turns and smiles. Well, just look who's here, he says. His voice is taunting, laced with sarcasm, seemingly unbothered by things like reputation, fear, or the threat of imminent, unspeakable violence. Ronnie Cray and Albie Woods step forward, eyes still fixed on their man, and the atmosphere in the pub begins to tighten, constrict. Time seems to slow down. Even as events speed up, nobody is able to react. Ronnie strides across the pub, his eyes never leaving George Cornell's. As he pulls out a distinctive Luger pistol the type used by the German army in the First World War, the type famed for its accuracy. Not that accuracy is an issue. When Ronnie suddenly raises the weapon at point blank range and blasts a neat hole an inch above Cornell's right eye. Shocked to the core, but thrust into action, Albie Woods pulls out a handgun of his own and points the barrel to the ceiling. He looks directly at the barmaid, the closest witness, and fires two shots over her head. She screams and flings herself to the floor. Nobody saw anything, Albie Woods cries, wishing he hadn't seen anything himself. Ronnie, mute and stony-faced, merely turns and walks past him, past everyone, and out of the pub back into the night. The patrons sit in stunned silence as Albie hurries after him. They quickly cross the road where a waiting car is parked. Their driver is surprised to see them back so soon. As they jump in, he asks, what happened? Just drive, says Ronnie Cray. The car spits into life, and they shoot off into the London haze. Moments later, sirens echo across the East End rooftops, while George Cornell's blood seeps into the floorboards of the blind beggar, as the craze take another murderous step to engraving themselves in London history and folklore. History is full of men and women who live outside the law. Some are heroes, others are villains. Many are both. Each week, we'll take you on a journey into the life and times of notorious outlaws, from Billy the Kid and Ned Kelly to Anne Bonny and Al Capone. We'll delve deep into their stories to find out how legends were born and continue to grow, often long after they're gone. I'm Nathan Wiley, and this is Real Outlaws. The infamous Cray twins stand apart from the rest of London's criminal fraternity. Uniquely feared, respected, and perhaps most mysteriously, even loved. At their height, beneath the glitz and glamour of 1960s London, They forged a bloody empire in the city's dark underbelly. As Ronnie Cray himself said, They were the best years of our lives. They called them the swinging 60s. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones were rulers of pop music. Carnaby Street ruled the fashion world. And me and my brother ruled London. We were untouchable. To understand the Twins' meteoric rise from impoverished youths scrapping for survival to powerful crime lords hobnobbing with high society, we have to go back to their humble beginnings. It's the 24th of October, 1933, and in the bedroom of a small terraced house on Heane Street in Hoxton, East London, Reginald Reggie Cray is born followed 10 minutes later by his brother, Ronald. They are the youngest and, as time would prove, last children of Charles and Violet Cray, joining their elder brother, Charlie Jr., who had been born four years earlier. Charles Sr., their father, is a dealer of clothing and jewelry, happy to trade in cash, and spends much of his time on the road looking for his next sale. This leaves Violet at home, although she is far from begrudging. Her children, and the twins in particular, are deemed a gift from on high. Kate Beale Blythe is a writer and documentary filmmaker, and the co-author of The Cray's Prison Years. She has spent hours interviewing the Cray's closest associates, and listened to the stories from those who were there.
2: Simply, the stories you hear about Violet is how she would walk around with her pram, proud as punch of having these beautiful boys. And the fact that people would stop her in the street, you know, makes you special, doesn't it? It it gives you a significance. So as simply as that, you know, as well as having two wonderful boys to love, she was noticed by her community for having these, you know, fine young men.
1: To Violet Cray, having such perfect boys is a symbol of status and worth and she is happy to parade them at every opportunity. It's a respite of sorts from the uniquely harsh landscape the Crays had been born into. Less than 20 years earlier, the country was crippled by the hardships of the First World War, in which over 100,000 Londoners didn't return. With the city's male population devastated, having these perfect little boys ...is understandably a huge source of pride and relief. Little did they know that within just six short years... ...Britain would face the horrors of war again... ...and this time London itself would become a battlefield.
2: So, it, you know, it was the interwar years, and there was uncertainty in the UK and Europe and the world. So, they were born into a time of uncertainty. And then, in their early years, it was World War II, where they were quite literally fighting for survival.
1: The twins, as young boys, are outwardly identical. Strong for their age, with dark hair, they share a distinctly glowering gaze. They move with a swagger and a confidence beyond their years. Inside, however, things are slightly different. The twins are both bad-tempered, but little Reggie seems to have an air of control about him, can rein it in if need be. His marginally younger brother, Ronnie, is somewhat darker, a little more brutish. His moods are more volatile. Luckily, as they age, the two become inseparable, and Reggie is often on hand to keep his brother in check. This happens with such regularity that it gets to the point where it seems that only Reggie can control Ronnie to any degree whatsoever. The reason for this difference in the twins' character has long been discussed, but an old theory remains. The story is much contested, but some have said the infant Ronnie was involved in an accident and received a blow to the head. Though he recovered, he was never quite the same.
0: I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noises newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I have spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. A vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses, and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows. We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The curious history of your home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to the curious history of your home Each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcaster's Noiser, the curious history of your home.
1: By the time World War II comes around, the twins are six, impressionable and learning. They are exposed to the horrors of war, but also to the social ills that come with it. In particular through the company their father keeps.
2: Their counterparts and peers were either learning their trade in terms of learning how to be a villain in the Second World War, which you know, crime increased enormously at that time, or there were their counterparts or their friends or their fathers who were either serving their country or avoiding serving their country. So it was a, an unusual time that not many people experience. And, and so they very much, I do believe, are a product of that era.
1: That era is best remembered for the Blitz. Between the 7th of October 1940 and the 6th of June 1941, almost 30,000 high-explosive bombs devastate London. As civilians become the primary target, the working-class families of dockers and laborers in the East End bear the brunt of the terror, and the infant craze are no exception. At night, they are locked down with windows covered and street lights extinguished their neighbors hide in basements and babies are stashed in drawers as bombs rain from the heavens when it's finally over when peace arrives the east end has to rebuild amid the economic fallout
2: home life in the east end in the 40s and sort of early 50s was brutal you know they were being bombed by the germans they were having to rebuild after the war, once the war was over. There was poverty, extreme poverty, and they were fighting for survival in so many ways. And it's the time of angry young men and the beginning of the kind of the angry young men who went into the 50s and 60s. And there's a whole generation of men of that era who had to work out how to survive and how to live after such a devastating consequence of the war.
1: This period instills grit, and determination in the boys, a desperate drive to survive at all costs. This is heightened by their conscription dodging father and his colorful acquaintances. One such friend who will end up playing a pivotal role in the twins' lives is Frankie Frazier, a notorious gangland figure, an unrepentant criminal who even after spending a lifetime behind bars would go on to receive an anti-social behavior order in 2013, at the age of 90.
2: There was no reflection or remorse, because Frankie Fraser is enormously proud of what he's achieved in his criminal career, even though actually if you look at what he's achieved, is more years in prison than most people have ever lived. This was one of their formative role models of somebody who just doesn't believe in that kind of you know, structure of authority. But then, you know, to a certain extent, why would they? They've just lived through the biggest war of the last few generations.
1: The twins are exposed to a way of life outside of the law, and the boys are also acting out in more aggressive ways themselves. Fortunately for everyone, they find an outlet in boxing, one of their great loves. They channel their violent impulses into a sport that embodies determination, grit, and power. And they excel at it. Although not as much as they'd have you believe, they end up with a handful of professional fights between them. But this outlet is taken away from them when early brushes with the law begin to mount up, including their own refusal to do national service.
2: After the war, all people of a certain age were conscripted into service of some sort, whether you'd be a Bevan boy, whether you go into the army, and the craze were conscripted into the army, and they did run away. And it resulted in them being put in the Tower of London. And there is the rumour that they were the last prisoners of the Tower of London. It is the story that we all like to tell. They were the last prisoners of the Tower of London.
1: Dishonourably discharged from the military, with criminal records growing, The twins are banned from boxing professionally. It is a devastating blow. But it spurs them to channel their considerable energy into money-making schemes. Needless to say, these are not exactly lawful activities. In 1954, at the age of 21, the twins start with a string of protection rackets right across East London, operating out of a snooker club in Mile End.
2: A protection racket is simply the understanding that nothing will happen to your business if you pay a certain fee. And that certain fee isn't necessarily cash. It could simply be, okay, if you give me enough bread this month, your bakery will always be looked after. No other gang is going to break into it. No one's going to try and rip you off your hours.
1: It's essentially a business of extortion and muscle for hire. But their reputations quickly grow, their influence expands. Violet Cray's two perfect young boys are getting quite the air of notoriety, although their dear mother never believes a word of it. The same can't be said for those who live under the Cray's watchful eyes, careful not to do anything to upset them, particularly Ronnie.
2: So they were sort of two young lads, one might call them thugs at the time, who were getting a name for themselves. There is a folklore, which is they were loved and feared by the East End community and loved because they didn't hurt their own and they protected their, you know, the women and the children. And there was a certain code of conduct.
1: A myth was beginning to grow about them, rooted in the East End, but also spreading beyond that they were these good old boys who looked after their community, who carried a code, a code where no women or children would be hurt.
2: they didn't probably hurt children, they didn't hurt a certain type of women, but equally they did hurt a lot of other women and there were prostitutes and other people who worked more closely in the scene who did come to harm, who didn't have you know the protection of the craze as such. So I would suggest that there was more fear in the community than love, but the myth and the legend is that they were protecting their community in a sort of Robin Hood style. However, at the end of the day, They were brutal thugs who beat people up for money.
1: There is no better example of this than the case of a man called Litvinov. He has a tab at one of the twins' gambling dens and has run up a sizable sum of 800 pounds. So he's invited to a snooker club for a chat. Reggie asks him for the money, but Litvinov tells him he has none. So Ronnie steps in. In a rage, Ronnie grabs an ornamental sword hanging on the wall and shoves it into Litvinov's mouth, splitting his cheeks from ear to ear, leaving Litvinov with the constant daily reminder of the time he crossed the craze. It's the type of violent explosion that quickly comes to mark out Ronnie as the hothead of the two. Another myth that encircles the twins right from the early stages of their story is about their sexuality and how this may play a role in their behavior. After all, at this time in London in the 1950s and 60s, despite talk of sexual liberation, homosexuality is outlawed.
2: The sexuality of the twins is always discussed and always up for debate. And I think none of us really know if we're truthful. I think it's fairly well known and clear that Ronnie was homosexual. In terms of Reggie, I don't think we ever know.
1: In contrast to his violent temper, Ronnie is also a romantic and falls in love easily. Although the young men he becomes infatuated with don't necessarily feel the same way. But with Ronnie's power and influence, new partners are never in short supply. Ronnie isn't exactly open about his sexuality, but being who he is, he doesn't hide it either. It's impossible to know the thoughts of those close to him, but it's easy to imagine in the social context of his gangland life that it might not be easy for Ronnie. A sentiment of othering and disapproval may add to his antisocial nature.
2: Clearly for Ronnie, growing up in a time when homosexuality was at first illegal and always frowned upon in such a male-dominated East End, tough, hard man community must have been incredibly difficult for him. I don't think anyone can sit there and say he had a great time with loads of young boys in London and he, he was having a fabulous experience. I can't imagine anybody would think logically that would be the case when you know that the stigma alone would have had an impact on him.
1: It is now becoming clear that Ronnie, amidst the scraps and thuggery, is self-medicating to try to keep some level of control. He is helped in this endeavor by his brother, Reggie. At the same time, business is booming for their gang, known as The Firm.
2: The firm is a term used for essentially the friends and associates of the praise. It's a colloquialism of their sort of the people who helped them in their bad deeds. The firm was made up of the the people who enforced the protection rackets or did other sort of, you know, ran the clubs or, um, you know, the bouncers on the doors or drivers, all of those who surrounded themselves, you know, the the Cray surrounded themselves by, but the firm was a quite loose and in some ways fun term of being in the Cray club.
1: The firm is growing in stature, and everybody suddenly wants to be associated with the craze. There's a buzz and a prestige about them, and about being protected by them, a kind of us-against-the-world mentality that is intoxicating to many at the time. But with increased attention comes exposure, and not just from the police, who by now firmly have their eye on the craze. As their territory expands and borders change, Other gangs begin to take serious notice. In particular, a rival crime family named the Richardsons, based south of the River Thames.
2: The Crays and the Richardsons are definitely stuff of legend. The basic understanding of the relationship between the Crays and the Richardsons was, you know, there was a certain amount of respect from both sides. However, they were both Entirely different in the way they operated and their skills and abilities. To hone it down into its essence, the Crays were very physical. They were thugs. They used menace in a physical way to get what they wanted. The Richardsons were perhaps more, one might say, intelligent in their way of obtaining money and would take more interest in things like long-term frauds rather than protection rackets. The Crays were a little bit more base in their operation.
1: There is an uneasy peace between the two gangs, for now. But while the firm is establishing itself as an ever more powerful group in the criminal underworld of London, in 1957, the 24-year-old Ronnie finds himself in more trouble with the law. A territorial feud has broken out over a pub called the Britannia in the East End. The Crays feel the place is on their patch, but another gang, called the Watney Streeters, have other ideas. In a fracas in the pub itself, Ronnie, once again in a fit of rage, stabs one of the Streeters with a World War II bayonet, one of his favored intimidation tools. When he is arrested soon after, he is also found to be carrying a loaded revolver.
2: Violence at that time was not unusual. It was a violent time in a violent place. The East End was a place where you know, one of the forms of language was violence. So actually stabbing somebody with a bayonet, spending time in prison wasn't unusual or shocking. It was part of the course of living in the East End at that time of the you know, the 20th century.
1: But Ronnie's actions stand out against the general backdrop of street violence. Even members of the firm are shocked at his ferocity. Words like psycho and madman are whispered. But the extent to which these violent acts can be attributed to Ronnie's mental health is unclear. After all, his brother Reggie is no angel either.
2: No one can actually say what Ron's mental health was exactly during what we know as their heyday. However, there were certain decisions, certain actions that he took that you think, okay, well, this could be paranoid schizophrenia or this could, these aren't the actions of a sane man. But then you could say that with so many criminals and murderers, these aren't the actions of a sane person. So you then have to question Reggie as well, because he went along with it. So it isn't simply Ron was mad and Reggie was pulled along for the ride. That's not the case. They were equals.
1: Ronnie is shocked when he is sentenced to three years in prison and struggles inside without his brother and his medication. So Reggie, ever the doting sibling, strikes an audacious plan to break him out. While Charlie and Reggie visit their brother, the twins perform, for want of a better expression, the old switcheroo. They wear identical clothes for the occasion, and on a trip to the bathroom, Reggie simply takes Ronnie's iconic glasses, puts them on, and waits, while the despectacled Ronnie walks straight out of the front door with Charlie. Reggie waits for a while, the glasses now in his pocket, and tells the guards Ronnie went to make him a cup of tea. He too then leaves. As easy as that, Ronnie is free again, and the twins are reunited.
2: Some of the cray stories really are stuff of legend, and that is why it sparks our imagination so much. Being twins gives them a sense of identity. As a duo, but also enables them to do daring, funny, and at times kind of unbelievable things like switching over in prison. So the fact that they were twins and visually they did sort of look like each other, you know, there are distinct differences. Obviously, Ronnie was slightly bigger and Reggie was slightly smaller. Ronnie was more active, Reggie was more laid back, but ultimately they were two kind of average height dark haired guys with a similar look about them. So actually you can see why a prison officer wouldn't necessarily notice the difference.
1: Ronnie eventually returns to jail and serves out what becomes an 18 month stay in Parkhurst prison. Reggie continues to visit his brother regularly, albeit under stricter circumstances, while keeping business moving on the outside. And it is during this time, Reggie, with Ronnie's blessing from prison, expands their interests. The craze move into nightclub ownership. They move into London's glamorous West End.
2: The West End, historically, has been a place of money and pride for the gangs of London. So from the sort of the 20s, 30s, 40s, there was a gang called the Sabini Gang who ran it. And then a chap called Billy Hill. And Billy Hill is this kind of iconic figure of the early 20th century in gangland culture. And he ran a lot of the clubs up west. And Billy Hill, I think, would have been known to the Cray Twins. Billy Hill was sort of one of the people in the Frankie Fraser circle. And Frankie Fraser worked for him. And so with people like Frankie Fraser coming around in the afternoon having tea with their dad, the twins will have heard about this.
1: From an early age, the twins had been surrounded by infamous criminal characters like Frankie Frazier and by connection, Billy Hill. They have always dreamed of transcending the daily grind of the East End and joining the glittering West End, where neon lights twinkle and the stars come out to play.
2: They will have heard about the club scene up west. They'll have heard about the value and the money that can be made within the nightclub industry. So from an early age, they'll have seen it, as I suspect, as a pot of gold. So it only does naturally then progress that once they've had the snooker clubs and they do the protection racket, they'll start doing a nightclub and then they'll work their way up west. In
1: 1960, Reggie acquires the nightclub and casino, Esmeralda's barn, When Ronnie leaves prison, the twins establish it as their West End HQ. With its not-so-secret reputation as a den of vice, it soon becomes a celebrity haunt for those looking for sex, drugs, gambling, or any other good time that can be had behind closed doors. Some are drawn there just to be associated with the high-class clientele the twins are soon playing host to stars as diverse as Hollywood's Judy Garland and boxing champs like Sonny Liston. By the early 1960s, the police have a constant interest in the twins and the firm, but their own operation is inconsistent until the arrival of a dedicated detective called Leonard Nipper Reed a man not so easily swayed by the piles of corruption cash flooding the force.
2: We all know the police in the 60s weren't the most legal or abiding bunch of people either. There was a certain amount of cooperation and criminality actually in the police, and and I think that is well documented and well known. However, there was a stand-up gentleman by the name of Nipper Reed who didn't cooperate and did become quite obsessive about the twins. Well, and he worked the case for a number of years and worked the associates and the firm members, quite literally chasing them around the country to bring them to justice.
1: But the crazes are no longer just East End thugs. They're powerful, and they have powerful friends who protect them. Some so powerful, they are within the British government itself. A conservative politician named Lord Boothby is introduced to Ronnie Cray in 1963, and the story goes that Ronnie supplied Boothby with young men and invited him to orgies at one of the Crays' properties, with the Crays benefiting from governmental favors in return. The Sunday Mirror newspaper runs an exposé in 1964, with Boothby denying everything and threatening to sue the paper. The paper backs down, retracts the story, and settles the lawsuit. But the message ripples through the establishment. The craze are off-limits to the press. The incident fuels the twins' sense of invincibility. It's a feeling that grows, spreading through their organization, even to low-level members of the firm. They feel untouchable. But tensions are also growing, too between the Crays and the Richardsons, as they constantly vie for territory. And it all comes spectacularly to a head in an incident known in London crime folklore as the Battle at Mr. Smith's. It's 3.30 a.m. on the 7th of March, 1966, and the night is drawing to an end. Mr. Smith's nightclub in the southeast London suburb of Catford is emptying as the last of the evening's guests pour out of the front door. But one party will not leave. Remaining at their table, taking their time with their drinks, is a half-dozen members of the firm. Eddie Richardson, of the rival Richardson's crime family, is in a side room drinking with Frankie Fraser and other Richardson associates. They are celebrating. Only that day, the owner of Mr. Smith's had agreed for the Richardsons to provide protection for the club in exchange for the crime family operating gambling machines on the premises. When Eddie Richardson hears that there is a party that won't leave, He's happy to embark on his first action in the club's interests. He approaches the men. But arriving at their table, Eddie instantly recognizes who they are and who they represent. Buoyed by drink and backed by his own, he orders them out. Drink up and leave. The firm members refuse, and immediately, a fight breaks out. Fists are flying. Glasses are smashing. Tailored suits are tearing. One firm member, Dickie Hart, goes one further. He pulls out a gun and shouts, Somebody's gonna die! He starts shooting up the club. Bottles of liquor explode, and plaster bursts from the walls and ceilings. Soon, more gunshots join the cacophony as the Richardsons fire back. A gang war has erupted on the nightclub floor. People scream and sprint for the exits. One of the Richardsons' men gets hit in the shoulder and falls to the floor while Frankie Fraser, a personal friend of the Krays, tries to intervene and calm down Dickie Hart. Frankie manages to get close. So does Eddie Richardson. And the two men try to claw the gun away from Dickie when three more shots ring out and all falls silent. A body slumps to the ground landing with a clatter of limbs. Frankie Fraser is hit, but only in the leg. Eddie Richardson is also wounded. But there, lying on the floor between them, staring open-eyed at the ceiling as if he should have seen it coming, is Dickie Hart. Dickie Hart was right. Somebody was going to die, but he just didn't know it would be him.
2: The Mr. Smith's incident is an example of it just getting out of hand and getting out of control and people trying to be too greedy. And that's essentially what the craze and the Richardsons were starting to become, was a, a, a fight of greed and a fight of ego. And Mr. Smith epitomized that and then you know, led to a it was at sort of the beginning of a house of cards falling.
1: Nobody truly knows who pulls the trigger on Dickie Hart, but it doesn't matter to Ronnie Cray. The very next night, incensed by the murder of one of their own, Ronnie Cray walks into the blind beggar pub looking for George Cornell, a member of the Richardson gang. Cornell has been visiting his friends in hospital and stops off for a quick drink on his way home. Ronnie shoots George Cornell at point-blank range in front of a room full of witnesses. The gloves are off. Next time on Real Outlaws, we will follow the craze House of Cards as it truly begins to wobble and fall, as more blood soaks into the London streets. Reggie finds love. Ronnie finds even more trouble. The twins together behave more erratically than ever, and Scotland Yard's finest begin to close in. With tensions climbing, who can the Krays really trust? And who wants to take them out? Find out next time on Real Outlaws.